And Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I pray for each of us that you'd give us something that encourages us, stirs us, moves us uh, one step anyway, closer to the image of Christ you mean to reproduce in us. Thanks, Lord, we commit ourselves in this time to you again in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys ever asked for something that you were absolutely convinced you wanted? Or maybe sometimes, too, have you demanded something that you believed was your right? And then you got it and you decided you really didn't want it after all? That is, what you thought you wanted was really different than what you got. You thought it was the same thing and it wasn't. Just a few examples. You buy what you think is your dream house, Stan, and then it turns into a money pit. (laughs) Or, you know, if you take a Caribbean cruise and then you spend it under uh, Montezuma's curse. You know, you thought you were getting one thing, you got another. Maybe you land what looks like a great career and then you find out it's a dead-end job. In each case, you think you're... Dan, that wasn't for you, I know. You think you want something, and maybe you ask God for something. Maybe you demand it's your right to get something, and then you get the thing you thought you wanted and decide it's not quite what you were after after all. That's kind of the occurrence we see this morning in Malachi, which is where we'll pick up Malachi 2, verse 17, the last verse in chapter 2, and in through verse 6 in chapter 3. You remember this is part of our series starting out the year to challenge us to live counterculture in 2006 and that each one of these things, each one of the indictments Malachi has raised came because of a lack of love Israel had for their God. So Malachi 2 verse 17, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Answer, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or... Where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver." He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Look in verse 17. God's indictment is, Israel, I'm getting tired of hearing you. And this is what he's getting tired of hearing. Israel says, those who do evil are getting good things. And those who do well don't get justice. So the charge is kind of uh, both sides of the sword, two sides of the coin. Israel's saying to God on one hand, God, those people who are wicked and evil, they're getting good things. They're being blessed. They look successful. Those wicked people are getting what they do not deserve. 
And then also they're saying on the other hand, and we, Lord, we happy few, we righteous ones, we're not getting what we should get. You're giving the wicked what they don't deserve and you're not giving us what we do deserve. Now remember for Malachi, these are Jews living under the law, living under the old covenant. So they had a certain expectation that if they did one thing, God promised to do another. And you remember historically, they've been restored to the land. The temple's rebuilt. Jerusalem is rebuilt. And so now, in their minds, they're kind of fulfilling God's requirements. They're back in the place of blessing. And so they have an expectation that God's going to deliver the goods. So they're saying to God, God, we don't think you're fair. We don't think you're doing this thing right. Now, remember who it is, though, that's making the charges here. Let me just rehearse where we've been already in Malachi. This is the same group whose love for God has grown cold, and they're lecturing God about his appropriate care for them. This is the group who gives God their diseased, infected, deficient animals in sacrifice, and then they lecture God on the inadequacy of his offerings to them. This is the same people that err badly, both in what they say and what they do, and they're notifying God of his personal shortcomings. And then this is also the group that has ruined God's desire to bless them through their family life and thus the nation by marrying foreigners, which meant that they would bow down and worship foreign gods, and then also through divorcing their own wives to marry again. And they're accusing God of not knowing how to keep his covenant. So this is rich, isn't it? This is rich. They're saying they're accusing God, you're not doing right, you're not playing fair, and we're griped about it. We want you to be fair, do right. This does sound a little bit like Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms, uh, Psalm 37 and 73, inverted numbers, are both about the same thing, God's uh, care for the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you remember in Psalm 73, one of the psalms of Asaph, it says this, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked at those that I thought were morally deficient before God, and it looked like they were doing pretty well in life, and it ticked me off. And then further in the psalm, he says, My heart became embittered, and I was pierced within. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. This has probably not happened to anyone here besides me but have you ever had or known someone when you see what you think is unjust you see somebody that you know their life is not what it should be maybe they're outright wicked maybe by any biblical objective standard you'd look at their life and say they've got no claim on god for goodness and yet they're materially blessed they're successful in their careers they're good looking whatever thing you think of they've got it made and you look at them and it tears you up inside. And this is exactly what was going on with Israel, the same thing in Psalm 73. I'm looking at the wicked, and I'm saying, Lord, this doesn't add up. You ought to be judging them, and instead, look how blessed they are. Or in Isaiah 40, which I'll quote repeatedly through this Malachi passage, Isaiah 40, this same claim Israel makes against God, doing right or being fair, was made 400 years earlier in Isaiah's day, God says, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. The justice due me escapes the notice of my God. God, you're not doing right. You're ripping me off, God. Years ago, when my family was younger, I told my crew I'd take them out for lunch. 
And Stan and I took them to the best place, the high-end restaurant. I think it was Sonic on Gage. <laughs> and I told them this was the deal. I'd take them out to lunch, and I'd split the cost of their lunch with them. So we drive to Sonic. We make our order. The girls give me half of their, the cost of their lunch, and I pay. Trouble is, one of the orders can't be filled. So we've got to change one of the girls' lunch. So they order something else, and it costs a little bit less. And so we get the order, and, you know, we're, we're eating lunch, and the gears in this little girl's head in the back seat are just running. And I can see it, and I know it. I'm kind of thinking, what's going on? And she says something about the lunch and the cost and the change, and, and finally you just see the cloud come over her face. And then she looks up. There weren't tears in her eyes, but, boy, was there righteous indignation. And she says, Dad, you're ripping me off. I said, what do you mean? Well, that lunch, I paid you for that half of that lunch, and where's my change? You're ripping me off. And boy, did she mean it. Uh, It was hilarious. We still laugh about it. We talked about it this week. In fact, it came up, and I said, that's a perfect illustration for this Sunday. But I did agree to conceal the name of this daughter. But anyway, this was so funny. See, to her... She's looking, she's adding up the cost of the lunch. I paid for this, I got this. Where's my change? Dad, you're ripping me off. I'm looking at it, and I just think the whole thing is farcical or comical. Here's my daughter that I love, who's from me. Her existence is due to me. She lives in the house I pay for, sleeps in the bed I paid for. Every piece of food that goes in her mouth is from my hand. The allowance that she's using to pay for half of her lunch is from me. And she thinks I'm ripping her off. Well, this, it's ludicrous, of course. It's ludicrous, both at motivational level or practical level. But, you know, temporarily, she's just, she can't see it. She's like the beast, frankly, in Psalm 73, where it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. God, you're ripping me off. That's what she said, and she meant it. And Israel, unfortunately, they, they feel exactly the same way. They're looking at God, and they're saying, Lord, you're ripping me off. And this is what they're saying to God. Lord, this is what we want. All we want is justice. Lord, all we're asking for is what's right and fair. You just come and you just do what you should do. You just come down and you give us justice and we'll call it fair. We'll, we'll say we're, we're good to go. Come down and give us justice. Verse 1 in uh, chapter 3 there, God says, Okay, Israel, you want justice, so I'm going to give you justice. He says, I'm going to send my messenger... My Malachi, you remember Malachi means messenger or angel in Hebrew. And he will clear the way before me, the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek, that is the one you want justice from, he will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, by the way, messenger the second time, messenger of the covenant is probably the Lord himself. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God says, okay, this is the deal. This is what I'll do. I'm going to send a messenger, another Malachi. And he's going to get the way ready for me. And then I, the Lord, the one you want justice from, then I'll come and it'll be sudden. So Israel, you want justice, you're going to get it. It's important, to be honest to the text, who's Malachi and, and what, what is, when did the Lord come? Historically, and, and then we'll get on to more application, but what is the direct context? Who is the messenger who had come? And what, what, what is... What is this appearance of the Lord? Uh, I don't think it's possible to see this in any less than two time frames. And the one is easy because the Gospels talk about this. We probably need to see uh, John the Baptist 
as the Malachi who had come at the first coming of the Lord Jesus. But then the, the application of this in context, both in chapter 3 and chapter 4, clearly goes beyond John the Baptist and Jesus' first coming. Uh, think of this. A couple identifications of John the Baptist. Do you remember in Isaiah 40, a voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Do you remember how John introduces John the Baptist? I'm a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah said, God will send a messenger and he'll prepare the way of the Lord. John says, I'm a voice, identifies with this Isaiah 40 and says, that's me. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus comes. In fact, it's interesting in John 2, as well as the two other gospel accounts, when Jesus cleanses the temple, we're probably meant at some level to understand this is the sudden appearance of the Lord in his temple, and he has this cleansing or purging work. You remember when he chases the money changers out, cleanses the temple? Probably some, we might call it a mini or a partial fulfillment of this passage. Also later in Malachi 4, we're told that the one who comes will be Elijah the prophet. And then in Matthew 11, Jesus says, if you care to accept it, he, that is John the Baptist, is Elijah who was to come. So historically, if we look back and we say, has this passage been fulfilled? At some level we say, well, sort of. Because John the Baptist is identified with Elijah out of Malachi 4, and Isaiah 40 is the messenger who would come, prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord Jesus came, God came, came to his temple, cleansed it. But clearly this doesn't answer everything that chapter 3 says will happen, and certainly it doesn't chapter 4. So there must be a second time frame. And Jesus also speaks in Matthew 17 of a future tense for Elijah when he says, to be sure Elijah comes or does come, and he will, future tense, restore all things. So just as far as who is this, what is it, has it happened, is it yet future, we could probably say this. In a partial sense at least, John the Baptist was the Malachi, was the messenger who would come. And Jesus' first coming, his incarnation into the world, his appearance in the temple, is a sudden appearance of the Lord of the covenant, the new covenant. But also, it's got to go past that, and it's got to reflect the second coming of Jesus Christ, or the rest of Malachi doesn't get fulfilled. And in that, in that sense, um, some look at one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Do you remember what they do? They call fire down from heaven, just like Elijah did in the Old Testament. Call fire down from heaven. Some believe that one of the two witnesses is perhaps this Elijah who would come. So partially fulfilled probably in the, old, or excuse me, in the appearance of John the Baptist and the Lord's first coming, but certainly not entirely fulfilled. So... All this sounds fine so far. God says, you want justice? Okay, this is what I'll do. I'll send a messenger, and then I'll come, and I'll dispense justice. A problem occurs, though, at verse 2 and 3. Having said he will come, the Lord who will dispense justice, he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. To the demand, Lord, we want you to come and bring justice, God says, fine, but you won't like it. And you won't be able to stand. I'm going to give you what you think you want, but you're going to find out it's not really what you're after. 1 Peter 4.17 says, 
It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And you remember, we've mentioned this briefly before, but when God dispenses justice, it generally goes like this. It goes from the top down. So if you read the, the temptation passage in Genesis, when God comes, who does he start with when he makes his indictment about sin and failure? He starts with Satan, the one who had the most knowledge. And then he goes to Adam. And then he goes to Eve. But it was Eve who sinned. So why does he start with Satan? Because Satan in God's eyes was most responsible. And so God says this, when I come to do what you've asked me to do, to dispense justice, it actually starts with you. See, they're looking at the unrighteous and the wicked, those people that they felt like with a clear conscience, they could point at and say, boy, they need it. And God says, well, this is the trouble with that perspective. When I come to dispense justice, I'm going to start with you, not with them. I start with you. I start with those who know the most. I start with those who are most privileged and closest to me, those who are most responsible. That's where I'll start. So he says he's going to start with Levi, with the house of Levi, that is the priests, the ones who taught and led the nation. So when God says he'll answer their prayer and he'll come to judge, it's not quite what they had in mind because he starts with them. It's only after he's done with the leadership even that he proceeds to the rest of the nation. And that's in verse 5. He says, I'm going to draw near to you when I'm done with the house of Levi and they can now again offer me the right kind of sacrifices. Then I'm going to go to the rest of the nation. He said he'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers. And I think as you go through this list in verse 5, you can read back into Malachi the things that he's already addressed. So the sorcerers are likely those who have married foreign wives and are now worshiping foreign gods. When he says adulterers, it's those who have illegitimately divorced their wives and married another. Those who swear falsely may be the witnesses that stood up to bear witness at the marriages to the foreign wives. Those who oppress the wage earners in the wages, that is those who don't pay their servants or the folks who have tended their fields or otherwise, their due. The, the widow and the orphan, that is the most vulnerable. Those with no, basically no legal recourse, no ability to get justice when others did them wrong. And those who turn aside the alien and those who do not fear me ultimately, God says. Remember, God had told Israel in the law, you were foreigners in a foreign land. You treat the aliens in your midst right. So when God comes to judge, he says he's going to start with the house of Levi, the leaders, and then he's going to go to the rest of the nation. So they thought what they were going to get when they asked God for justice is those other wicked people were going to get it. And God says, well, no, that's not quite the way it works. I start with you and I go out from there. You remember in the development of Malachi, we said it's this legal framework in which God makes the indictment and then they say, well, what do you mean? And then God clarifies the charge. And here it's interesting too. Uh, They're asking for justice and they don't really understand what that means. They're dull. And you remember this all started from a lack of love in the, the very opening verses of Malachi. And out of that, they start slipping in all these other areas of their life. 
And you guys know that, that sin and moral failure, moral equivocation, it leads to this dullness and this hardness of heart and this spiritual or moral darkness over time so that the, the judgment that we still think is acute and accurate is not. It's dulled over time. That's exactly what has happened to Israel. They're asking for things they really don't understand the implication of, and they don't even get it why God is angry or upset with them. It's interesting that, you know, in Romans uh, chapter 1, the opening passages of Romans, Paul wants everyone on the earth to understand that they're morally culpable before God. That is, that man has a sin issue with God. And so what does he do? He kind of starts with this softball. I mean this. He writes the letter to the Romans, and he says, boy, aren't those ignorant Gentiles stupid? Look at what they do. They worship and they bow down to statues and and idols and things of nature. Boy, they're really out to lunch, aren't they? And Paul knows when he starts here that the Jewish listeners in Rome would say, yeah, they're really out to lunch. But what does he do in chapter 2? He says, and uh, what about you who have the law but don't live by it? It's always easy, easier, for us to look at others and point the finger and say, boy, aren't they morally deficient? Boy, aren't they wicked? Boy, don't they miss the mark? And it's especially easy. I think this is true for for all of us, all of humanity. But it's especially easy, I think, for those who are or believe they are in relationship with God. It's easy to develop a proud attitude that is itself blinding or deadening to an appropriate view of ourselves and others and God. I think as Christians, we have got to be so, so careful about indicting others. You remember Jesus says in the Gospels, before you go to your neighbor and say, hey, you've got a speck in your eye, what you need to do, you need to examine yourself and pull the log out of your own eye. That's essentially the same thing here. I've got a friend who does what's called nuthetic counseling. And nuthetic is a Greek term that means to confront. It's used in Ephesians a few times, to confront someone else with the truth. And generally, this is what happens. Someone will come to this nuthetic counselor and they'll say, I've got a problem with so-and-so. And And you know where they always start? Uh, They never start with the problem with so-and-so. They always start with that verse about take the log out of your own eye first. In other words... If we're going to get things right, if you've got issues and we need to get some things right, then let's start with you, not with the speck in the other person's eye. And I just think uh, it is too easy for us to not examine ourselves, but to point the finger. And that's true in the church in our day, and it's true in Israel in Malachi's day. You know, the world, and, and part of this is just satanic, but... The world is quick to point out the deficiencies of Christians and the church. And sometimes we make it amazingly easy for them to do so. And this aspect of hypocrisy, probably none other more glaringly than this. That is, if we say to the world, you need to live to this standard, and then we don't. It's hypocrisy. And we tell God or we pray about those evil, wicked people who do A, B, and C, whatever it is, but we don't clean up our own lives. This is the hypocrisy God's indicting 
Israel for in Malachi's day. It is a disease that we need to be acutely aware of. And before we even think about God's judgment on others, we need to be examining our own hearts and our own lives. I love this too, um, backing up just a minute. You know, when they looked at the unrighteous, they thought God was being unfair, and he was. They thought God was being unjust, and he was. But you know, in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father. That is, so that you may reflect the character of your own Father. You'll you'll show the genetic continuity between yourself and God the Father when you pray for those who persecute you and love your neighbors. Why? Or your enemies. Why? Because your Father causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. You can take this, uh, this two ways. You can look at the unrighteous, the wicked, even if by any objective standard they really are out to lunch, they're evil and they're wicked. You can look at it two different ways. You can look at God's goodness to them and their success and the material success or whatever good things they get to enjoy this life, and you can say God's not fair. He's unjust. Or you could say this. Isn't God's love and mercy and goodness amazing? Because he sends his son and his reign on the unrighteous too. You could change your perspective 180 degrees and what would otherwise make you feel like the beast trying to indict the God of goodness and mercy for not being just to the unrighteous. You could turn that on its head and say, Lord, your goodness, your kindness, your forgiveness, your compassion, they're amazing. Because I look at that person, I see their life, and I see that you still bless them with good things on the earth. And remember, frankly, judgment will never be put off forever. That is, for us as Christians who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to have the fruit of our lives judged so that God can reward us appropriately, or for unbelievers who will stand before the great white throne of Jesus Christ and be sent into eternal separation away from the God of all mercy, truth, and goodness, judgment will come. It's it's not a question of whether it will or won't. It will. But for now on the earth, until the hammer falls for the final time, God's still displaying His goodness and His mercy and His compassion on the just and the unjust. So when you see that person that you think is that low-life scumball who's got the good looks you wish you had or the good health or the good job or the career success or whatever, the happy family, whatever it might be, instead of saying, God is so unfair, remind yourself your dad is incredibly good and merciful. He's better than just. He's better than just. And by the way, This passage closes at verse 6 with this. I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In the final analysis, God says this. You guys that are crying out for justice, you know what? The only reason you're free to stand and cry that out is because I'm a God of mercy, not just a God of righteousness and justice. That is, God says, if I only did justly, 
you would all be guilty. You would all be under the sentence of death. You would all be rightly condemned. None of you would stand. If God only did justice, we're all in trouble. It's the fact that he's a God of mercy and he says he doesn't change. You know what this means? Looking back, God's saying, I've always dealt in mercy, not just justice with mankind and with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel and with the church and in the future. God says it's only the fact that he goes beyond justice that any of us have a hope, have a chance, have a prayer that God can shower us with goodness. It's mercy. It's not justice. And on a morning when we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper during uh, open worship time, let me just remind you, all of us stand debtors to God. And Jesus Christ comes into the world in the incarnation as the Lamb of God. The righteous takes on the sins of the unrighteous. This is not justice. This is mercy. The one who had no justice due him, no judgment due him, takes on your sins and mine, the sins of the world, John says, so that God can dispense goodness and mercy, not just justice or judgment. When you and I are tempted to look around and say, God, you're ripping me off, you're not fair, thank God. Thank God he's not just, just. Thank God he's merciful and compassionate because if we got what we deserved, we would all be in hell. We've got to be supremely careful when we ask God for judgment. And by the way, John's gospel says that the Father has given the Son all judgment. Why do you think that is? This makes sense to me. The one who deserved only life and goodness got death because he bore our sins. And that's the one the Father gives judgment to. This is also why when you feel like you're getting the dirty end of the stick, that you're not getting your just desserts in life, and and by the way, we won't. You know, there are times we'll do right and we'll have wrong given to us in return. We'll do the right thing and we'll get some kind of disaster in response. But you remember what Peter says? That when you're vilified or when you suffer for doing right, what do you do? You entrust judgment, justice to the one who knows how to take care of it, which is exactly what Jesus did. Entrusted himself to the one who would do right. So when you feel that temptation, the beast within says, God isn't fair. Or you look with those eyes of envy on someone else who you know is not as good and fine and upstanding a person as you and yet look at the good things in life they have that you don't. When you start feeling those thoughts and those temptations, remind yourself, thank God. God is better than just. Thank God he's compassionate and merciful. And when you see the good things on the wicked and the evil, thank God that it's a reminder to you, my father is so good, so compassionate, so merciful, he gives even those who would spit in his face goodness in this season and this time. 
you remember that this whole series through Malachi was this reminder to live counterculture in 2006, to swim upstream against the tide and the force of the culture around us. Let me suggest that one of the ways you can do that in 2006 is to make it your aim to be quick to thank God for his mercy and then commit judgment to him in those areas of life that are outside your control anyway. And that we love God. You remember this all comes back to a lack of love. All the indictments God brings up against Israel. A lack of love. You and I love God when we realize that we deserve judgment but get mercy. That keeps us humble. That keeps us in a position to appropriately thank God and love God. And we love God when we look at the ungodly world that's at least temporarily blessed and successful and we thank God again for his goodness and his mercy. We don't want to be like Israel. We're going to ask God for something that we really don't want. Because when justice and judgment come, it starts at home. It starts with us. And only after that does it go out. And remember that when you're railing against God for justice, remember ultimately that's already taken place when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and mine. God's judgment and his mercy met together and it's only because of that that God can give his mercy to us and not give us what we're hollering for justice give us something better than justice give us mercy let's pray Lord I'm floored at your consistency in a world that does spit in your face literally in your son's case Lord a world in which even those who call your name raise our fist in the sky to say you're not doing right. Lord, how laughable that you, the God of all justice, Lord, you, the God who could not sin, that has no shadow of deficiency in you, that you could even do evil is laughable. And Lord, how odd that your creatures, those who receive every breath from your hand, who who receive rain and sunshine and good times and harvests, Lord, and all your bounty, Lord, that we would presume to indict you as deficient. Lord, when we feel these stirrings, when we feel the temptations to disregard your mercy and call for your judgment, help us to remember your Son on the cross bearing our sins and that, Lord, your judgment, your justice went far beyond requirements so that we could receive your mercy and father we do live as isaiah said we're wicked people in the midst of a wicked generation help us to confess to you our own sins and faults first and then implore in your name those like us in the world around us to come to be reconciled to you through your son lord we want to ask you to help us to give you all judgment and to thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.